and from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building repair and storage facility located in Belfast, Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. Support for WERU also comes from Bruce Parley Incorporated, specializing in custom-built staircases and also fine-finished carpentry on yachts, trolleys, etc. since 1998. In Trenton at 479-4269 or brparley at gmail.com. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Wet morning, wet morning. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 10, 10 a.m. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio WERU-FM Blue Hill 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor. All around this wet world at WERU.org, Boat Talk is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors and bad buoys, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague. Today, we're going to be doing a Veterans Day special of sorts with uh, Charlie Pugh. You may have may be familiar with Charlie Pugh. <laughs> <laughs> he was just on the last hour. He's changed his hats. Charlie is a retired Navy navigator. Going to have some good stories there, but... First of all, uh, bad, I'm sorry, bad, bad buoys. Bad buoys, yeah. I just, you know, thought I'd float that out there. Yeah, that, um, I think you, um, he is, of course, the punny one, and I admire that one. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't Maybe immediately like being called a bad buoy, but yeah, good one. I knew, oh. I knew some bad buoys yeah. <laughs> back in the day. Yeah, they can uh, be a problem sometimes when you <laughs> meet the ropes. We always wonder about special buoys. Sometimes you run across a buoy that's not on the chart. Oh, uh, right, yeah. Often they'll be yellow, yeah. special private, buoys, yes. Private buoys, yes. yes. So if you can't be a bad buoy, perhaps you could be special. There's a navigating story right there following private buoys. and <laughs> That's another thing. So uh, why don't you go first, Mike, with uh, what we're going to be talking about locally. Well, um, we uh, got a couple of... Um, Boat talk related uh, uh, current events here. And uh, last month we talked to our friend Ben Emery, wrote a new book called Sailor for the Wild on Maine Conservation and Boats. Um, ben is uh, one of the founders of the um, conservation industry on the coast of Maine here. Right, Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Yep, would have loved to have had him back here this morning um, for a I couple wonder. of reasons. <laughs> One is he's a veteran as well. Right. He self-identifies as a, uh, a destroyer officer. Destroyers, yes. I didn't realize the name Tin Cans until you mentioned it to me a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and I uh, got a book at a yard sale for 10 cents. It was a quarter, and I didn't have a quarter, and uh, I got it for 10 <laughs> cents. And It's called Tin Cans. It's uh, 
It's the uh, it's a paperback World War II combat saga of Americans fighting destroyers, uh, you know, specially illustrated edition, and uh, I wanted to share that with Ben, among other things. And, and uh, But we interviewed him last month, and I hadn't had a chance to read his book. Right. We talked about his book without having read it. The book's yeah. called Sailor for the Wild. And we had a we had a nice enough conversation. Uh, we, we did all right talking to Ben last month. But the whole time we were doing that, I thought we were uh, not quite there. And as soon as we finished, I thought of all kinds of interesting things to ask him about. And having read the book now, uh, so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my favorite places uh, he's involved in, uh, Scudic. He has would a be good excuse for being not here today, though. Did I tell you that? He's off in Ireland. Yeah, he's yeah. in Ireland hiking. So, yeah, we'll have to accept that excuse. Man, I'd like to think somebody could, you know. Uh, Ben's a great guy. He's a lot of fun. I uh, actually helped him deliver his boat one time uh, a few years ago uh, from Freeport down to uh, the southeast. I think we got as far as uh, Wilmington. North Carolina, somewhere around that area. Which boat was that? Do you remember the name? I don't, to tell you the truth. Was it a, a B-40, perhaps, or a no, I don't think European so. boat? I, I don't know. I think it was, I think it was U.S. US built. Hmm. Yeah, we'd like to have Ben. We'll definitely have Ben back and uh, talk some more about conservation. And uh, I've always uh, thought of Scudic as the center of the universe, is, is what we call Scudic. And he was uh, instrumental in... Um, helping preserve the Scudic Corridor, as they call it, uh, from the Scudic Peninsula, uh, sticking out into the water to the mountain um, up into the woods. and uh, Also, a concept that I was quite surprised at. You think when conservation, you're talking about islands and waterfront and stuff. Well, you need land. You need, uh, critters need land. They need corridors. They need highways. A lot of them do move around, that's true. And to uh, uh, also conserve continuous back uh, land back from the shore. It turns out to be just as important ecologically as, as getting that, um, you know, uh, glittery waterfront that we all kind of focus on. So, yeah, well, sorry Ben's not here this morning, but from the Bangor Daily News this morning, business section, four fishermen snag first scallop license since 2009. Right, yeah, 1,300 applied for four licenses. 1,300 uh, applicants applied for four scallop licenses. <laughs> and uh, the boys were uh, Matthew Alley of uh, Beals, uh, Chase Fitzsimmons of Lubeck, John Oliver down to Deer Isle, and Frank Gott over to Bass Abba. Uh, these are all dragger licenses. There were no diver license offered. Uh, all the diver licenses were renewed this year uh, that were last year. And the key to this whole thing is that in 2005, the scallop harvest was only 33,000 pounds. That's down quite a bit, isn't it? Bottomed, bottomed right out in 2005. Um, just didn't seem to be any around. Last season, we harvested 800,000 pounds of scallops. Ooh. That got people's attention. The price is up. And, uh, yeah, price is yeah. up. Yeah. So that was the best harvest since 1997, and the state is trying hard not to... Uh, uh, let too many more people in. I uh, believe uh, three have to retire before two get back in. Uh, these are all dragger licenses and uh, quite valuable, yeah. uh, obviously, to the uh, boys involved. We yeah. lost uh, one diver also. Do you think the same thing is oh, going on Lord. with uh, scallops that are going on with lobsters where the water is getting colder and lobsters moving north? And- we're going to get to that in just a minute. Okay. Uh, that's okay. Uh, that's the second article from the Bangor Daily News. But we got to talk about this, too. 
business section, Bangor Daily News today, uh, above the fold, top of the uh, page headline, uh, four fishermen snag for a scallop license with a picture. Picture. Scallop diver Andy Mays cuts out the innards of a scallop on his boat lost airman in Southwest Harbor in March 2007. The uh, main fishery last uh, week held lottery, blah, blah, blah. So we are friends with Andy Mays, and uh, yeah. we called him up this morning. I did. I called him up to give him a, a warning. Uh, Andy, we're, we're probably going to be talking about you. Yeah, Heads right. up, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> his uh, his very nice wife, Michelle, answered the phone. I know Michelle from quite a ways back, and she's... She had some bad news. Uh, she had some bad news. She said Andy wouldn't be able to talk to us because he had died from cancer. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, and just shocked the hell out of us. Yeah. Uh, like I say, yeah, wow. Andy, a uh, good old friend, uh, lost airman uh, yeah. down at Dyes Arts Marina there. And, he said um, she, he, he had cancer for three years. He never talked about it. That's mm. what I know. He just... And it's quite a shock that uh, somebody you know and like, all of a sudden you hear he ain't there, as, yeah. uh, like I say, and we were... Uh, uh, talking about you this morning anyway, Andy. Yeah, um, good guy. Man, whatever secrets you've just found out, bud, how about a, how about a message back somehow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Not only did he uh, sell uh, scallops for the meat, he also uh, harvested uh, other scallop organs for research at the University of Maine, too. He was uh, very... Andy was an interesting fellow, yeah. And again, uh, not only knew what the top of the water looked like, but underneath it, too. Yeah, Andy Mays, rest in peace. Uh, very shocked to hear that this morning. And uh, so anyway, that's all connected. From the front page of the Bangor Daily News, Charlie was just asking about, uh, you know, why are the scallops uh, in short supply? And uh, study, warming ocean hindering Maine shellfish. And uh, clamors say that the fishery must adapt. Read this for you for just a second here. It says, uh, Valuable species of shellfish have become harder to find on the East Coast because of degraded habitat caused by a warming environment. This is according to a pair of scientists who sought to find out whether environmental factors or overfishing was the source of the decline. Scientists reached the conclusion in studying the decline in the harvest of four commercially important species of shellfish from North Carolina to Maine. Uh, eastern oysters, northern quahogs, uh, soft-shell clams, and northern scallops. They reported that their findings come down squarely on the side of a warming ocean environment and a changing climate and not excessive harvest by fishermen. Um, among other things, shellfish are more susceptible to uh we'll get to the phone in a minute more susceptible to uh, uh predation and a warming environment but uh here's a great quote for you clamors aren't the reason there's no clams uh who said that well uh, this is a, a scientist here and um it says and I believe they talked about this uh, on Coastal Currents just recently with Dr. Brian Beal from the University was, of Machias. I think it was yeah. Dr. Beal who said that. Yeah, and uh, says that scientists finding uh, tracks with others who have uh, studied the impact of warming waters on shellfish, such as uh, Brian Beal, professor of uh, marine ecology at University of Maine, Machias. Beal, who was not involved in the study, has said that rising temperatures could spell doom and gloom for the clamming industry and probably for other industries as well. That's especially true of valuable species that are important 
Food items like clams and mussels, none of this can be attributed to overfishing, a term that is used willy-nilly and applied erroneously to these declines in commercially important shellfish, Dr. Beale says. Um, yeah. Things is changing and not for the better. I think a lot of fishermen like Dr. Beale now. <laughs> One of uh, Brian Beale's uh, uh, big points that I thought is a bit revolutionary is that the hunter-gathering aspect of clamming has probably come to an end of you wandering around in the mud looking for uh, clam holes and digging them up right. anywhere you can get down on the shore and, and think there are some. The new paradigm may be renting a piece of mud on the shore and farming it, putting in clam seed, putting nets against predators out over the thing, and you farm that little piece of mud. Uh, he says that's the new clamming in the future here coming. And some of that's going on right now, too, uh, with oysters, I think, uh, up in Goose Marsh Pond and uh, Western Bay and place, places uh, like that. Goose Cove. Uh, Goose Cove, yep, yeah. Up the yeah. top of uh, MDI is our friend uh, Joe Parada. Yeah, yeah. I just met a fellow named Guy who was uh, fishing. He's uh, doing um, oysters on the west side of Islesboro, and I asked him if he was having uh, and the issues that Joe is, and he apparently is uh, quite welcome over there where Joe has had to really struggle to find a piece of water to fish, and uh, you couldn't find anybody that wants to work harder and do better than Joe, so, you know. Yeah. You know, talking so, about clams over on the western side of MDI, I remember when we first came here 30 uh, some eight years ago, you could go out and get a bushel of clams in 30 minutes, no problem at all. And now, well, well for a few years ago, you couldn't do it, couldn't get them at all. And now they've started to come back some because there's apparently been some spats that have been put in there and management plan put in effect, and we're starting to see them come back a little bit. Well, we do still have that phone call, I believe, from from Yo. So let's let's go to that phone call. Good morning. Good morning. This Yo. is Captain Yo. As long as you guys are looking at the news and uh, talking about warming oceans, I'm looking at this article which says that NASA satellites have detected a huge heat anomaly in the Atlantic. Some sort of major heat source coming from below the water. Uh, could it be an underground base? Uh, scientists are not convinced, obviously, a fire isn't burning in the middle of the ocean. It could be gas flares, but that's usually shallow water. They discounted the possibility of volcanic activity. It seems like a very strange phenomenon to me. And I wondered if anyone else has heard about it or knows about it or if it could be somehow connected to the sea is not level phenomenon that we've been discussing for months now and which um, I don't think has been adequately answered. I just read a very interesting uh, little fact that kind of blew me away. Um, uh book was, I don't know, I uh, won't get the title exactly right, but basically it was the ocean in the age of algorithms and the idea being how we can work to uh, be positive about the oceans in, in the age of so much information. Um, made the point that there is more heat trapped in the top 10 feet of the ocean than there is in the rest of the atmosphere of this planet. Mm. 
So, yeah, I haven't heard anything about specifically about a hot spot in the Atlantic Ocean. That sounds a little scary to me, but and I guess my point would be about the uh, uh, the ocean. Ha- the water has a special uh, heat absorbing capacity, uh, you know. And one of my favorite things that just happened recently on the TV news: well, the storm has gone safely out to sea. <laughs> As if there's nobody and nothing out there. Uh-huh. And it didn't come from the sea in the first place. The sea is not running the whole deal. And, and uh, you know, uh, like I say, the amount of heat trapped in the top 10 feet of the ocean exceeds the uh, heat in the rest of the yeah. atmosphere of this planet. Well, yeah, there there may be somebody out there who does know about this um, warming in the Atlantic. And we haven't given out the phone numbers yet, been delinquent there. So anybody who would like to call in for any sort of comment or question, the number is one 625 9378 Or you can go online to boattalk at gmail.com. We have the computer standing right by. We left that as an open question. There's no... There's no alleged uh, what's happening here. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's, everybody knows, or well, I don't know if anybody really knows, but anybody has any information, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Our friend Captain Yo is a uh, climate change skeptic. I think is fair to say. There's uh, we've got a couple of them listening. There's Not no just doubt climate about it. change, but yeah. Yeah, but uh, literally been trying to uh, make an ongoing commentary on the subject because it seems obvious to me it's uh, pretty much running the planet at this point. And uh, things are uh, obvious. Uh, the uh, much wilder weather on the TV pretty much uh, almost all the time. And I guess the uh, joke would be if when the apocalypse comes and you are offered a choice of fire or flood, Choose flood. Yeah. Choose flood, man. I'll take flood, yeah. You can swim away from that and you might not get boiled or you can still breathe and uh, you can't do much when, when your place is on fire, you know. You know, I always talk about when we do the legal IDs uh, on on the uh, on the radio that uh, we uh, live on a fragile island in space and we do. There's uh, nowhere to go. You don't don't like what you got here and you don't take care of it. Where are you going to go? Uh, I believe somebody, uh, might have been John Kerry, uh, criticizing the uh, new administration's uh, uh, stance on climate change in the Paris Accords, uh, maintains that there is no planet B right. planet to retreat to. So, no plan yeah. B, no planet B. Okay, we uh, Yo has called back, so let's go back to Yo. Good, good morning again, Yo. Hi, perhaps I hung up a little too quickly. I would like to respond to that ad hominem characterization by saying that I'm not skeptical about climate change because I'm a trained geologist and evidence of climate change is all around us. However, I am very skeptical, as everybody should be, about which way the ball is going to bounce and what we can do about it. And I'm really skeptical about this sea level not being level thing. And I really would like to know more about that. Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for being Community Radio. Thanks for being out there, yo. Yeah. Um, Well, one answer I have to that is that the global warming is undeniable. There's just too much 
evidence that it's getting rapidly warmer. And one of the effects of that is it causes the oceans to expand as they heat up. So that obviously will make increased sea levels. Well, and I also brought in this morning a copy of uh, Science News Magazine, uh, the Society for Science and the Public, uh, given to me by my friend Patrick Rule down in uh, Castine. And the uh, article he pointed me at was uh, called Cloudy Forecast. The biggest source of climate uncertainty is white and fluffy, they say. And uh, so here's the basic idea. Uh, a lot of people that poo-poo the idea of climate change say, well, this is all just computer modeling, okay? And they don't know nothing. And in some ways, that's not a bad uh, take on that because think of the complexity of our atmosphere. How could you possibly recreate it in a computer, uh, you know, to a complete degree of certainty? I mean, you can't. And one of the points they make in this uh, article is the more data we get, the more uncertain things sometimes become, you know? Um, but, uh, again, the point being that, uh, uh, things are, uh, uh, tending in one, one direction and the models are actually turning out to be quite conservative. The models are underperforming reality. And this is before we get into the idea of tipping points where you've got, you say, well, It'll be two degrees uh, warmer in uh, 50 years. Well, it doesn't sound very exciting at all. <laughs> but there are jumps and starts. Uh, there are big storms and there are tipping points where perhaps if something gets two degrees uh, warmer, something else is not ever coming back. So uh, things go in fits and starts. The, this article, uh, Cloudy Forecast, is about the uncertainty of the uh, computer models and all has to do with clouds in this case. The mystery deepens when scientists try to understand how clouds influence climate. Clouds lead sort of a double life, both trapping and deflecting planet warming energy. Their molecules, like all water in the atmosphere, contribute to greenhouse effect by lapping up infrared radiation emitted by the Earth and redirecting some of that energy back towards the planet's surface. But the clouds' white tops also reflect collectively, almost a quarter of the solar radiation that reaches them. In effect, they shade the planet. All told, clouds cool through reflection far more than they warm through the greenhouse gas effect. And uh, that clouds both warm and cool is established, but how the global balance between these two will shift as things heat up is not established. Even seemingly minor shifts in clouds' behavior could substantially dampen or accelerate global warming. Early predictions suggest that clouds might work to counteract rising temperatures. As the ocean absorbs more heat, they add more water vapor to the air. This, the thinking goes, would create more sunlight reflecting clouds, which would help cool the planet. In climate speak, this is known as a negative feedback loop. Research over the last two decades suggests, however, that the cloud feedback is more complicated and more likely to result not in cooling but in added warming. And again, the uh, models that they've been making are very conservative in uh, what they've been trying to uh, portray and have underperformed reality. Uh, among other things, we notice that the troposphere, the top of the atmosphere, is getting taller. And as, as things get higher, variables change, you know. So uh, 
Previously, scientists didn't always know even basic things such as clouds' altitudes, volume, and how often they produce rain. Researchers have been surprised to learn just how much of water in clouds is frozen. The amount of ice in the atmosphere seems to exceed the amount of liquid almost everywhere else. And clouds uh, with more ice have a uh, stronger greenhouse effect. And again, we're uh, still trying to model what these things could be, possibly. The, uh, the, the ending uh, of this is that nearly all the models predict that as the world warms, clouds will change in ways that will further increase warming that we don't understand. There's a lot we don't understand. Yeah, and again, if the neighborhood's on fire, get out. And uh, the flood's no fun either, folks. Vote for a flood. Yeah, but it's good to be boat people. As I say, world's mostly water. There's more coming. Good to be boat people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, I have one sort of local, Portland, Maine. Uh, German shipping company, MST, has been fined $3.2 million after pleading guilty to obstructing justice and falsifying oil record books in order to conceal pollution from one of its ships calling in Portland, Maine. The ship is called Margarita. It was actually christened in Portland, Maine, um, forget, just about a year ago or so. It was built in 2016 in China and uh, moved around a little bit um, and then finally ended up uh, being calling Portland its uh, home port because it delivers some um, uh, special slurry for uh, paper making from Nova Scotia to Portland about once a month. Um, the $3.2 million fine, and they're also on probation for four years, is because they have what's called a magic pipe. Oh, Carnival cruise ships had a boat with a magic pipe. They well, since this boat was built in 2016, which is you know just a couple of years ago, I wonder if it was actually built with a magic pipe in it in China. Hmm. Hmm. So anyway, this is the second time they've been caught uh, pumping overboard with their magic pipe. So that's why they got the the big 3.2 million dollar fine. Which uh, we'll remain to see if they. I believe we pay commented uh, on the Carnival cruise ship uh, story that there is no secret plumbing, there is no magic plumbing, and uh, for instance, I used to caretake a Hinkley Fifty, and the fella was, I think, quite justified in the idea that I do not want to store human waste on my boat. Okay, mm. you can smell it. Um, people come down to the boat and they open the hatch and and they take a big whiff of boat and they say to themselves, oh, we've been on oh, back on the waterfront, it smells like the... <laughs> no, it doesn't. Outside. <laughs> no, when you open that hatch, it smells like old fiberglass and stale poop is what it smells like inside that boat. And if you are having a holding tank in your boat, you've got issues of odor. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Plus now, they build up pressure and blow up, too. I know one that did. Yeah, uh, and yeah. Uh, back, in the, back in the day, uh, nobody stored uh, stuff in the holding tank. We pumped everything overboard. Didn't have holding <laughs> tanks. Yeah, ba- but nowadays uh, it's arguable uh, some pieces of water will flush better than others. The Bordeaux Lakes in uh, the middle of Cape Breton, for instance, if they catch you, 
pumping overboard there, they will probably uh, not let you continue in any way, shape, or form. Kick you out of town. It takes 12 years to flush the Bedore Lakes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they can't be having that. The Chesapeake, same, same sort of idea. Um, if you are concerned about... Um, Orders in your boat, I am a big fan of uh, compost and toilets at this point. There's a thing called the Airhead made in Westbrook, Maine, that diverts uh, urine and the uh, solids, uh, mixes peat, and is, uh, by all accounts, odor-free hmm. is the way to do it. But back to our story. I was asked by this uh, New York uh, financier uh, uh, who uh, ended up uh, the 2008 uh, crash. He was one of the uh, chief managing partners at Bear Stearns. Okay, this is a fellow who you know can do anything he wants. He asked me to mislabel the valve that says we're going into the the holding tank or overboard. So when the Coast Guard or anybody came on board, uh, even the people who worked on the boat would be confused, and not know what we're doing. And my point to him is, here's the valve. There's the pipe. It's obvious. A plumber. Yeah, you follow. Yeah, there's follow not much the mystery in plumbing to a plumber. Pipes go places. Yeah. they have stuff in them. There's, yeah. n- there's no magic in it. Okay, and it's, it was so obvious. But I, you know, that's what I did for him. So anyway, no longer with him. Don't know how it ended. We have another phone call. So let's go to Glenn down in Rockport. Thank you for waiting, Glenn. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, you guys are uh, putting out some interesting stuff. In fact, uh, when you mentioned this hot spot. In the South Atlantic, I went online and looked. Oh, good. It's more than that. There's, it is associated with what they call a magnetic anomaly, a well-known, the South Atlantic magnetic anomaly, which I'm going to guess from my uh, finite knowledge is, um, you know, the Earth's magnetic field, any mariner knows the Earth's magnetic field is all over the place. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it enters and exits not just at the North and South Pole or near them, uh, but also places like the South Atlantic. So there's, and that's the protection we have from radiation. So there is a place where they have to be careful with satellites in the space station because the magnetic field has pulled in and there's a lot of particles that make it much closer to the surface. And that same location has shown up repeatedly as a hotspot, a thermal hotspot, and they still don't know why, but that's kind of interesting. It Something interesting. else ecological I would uh, put out for people to uh, think about. Uh, I was shocked by this. Uh, a couple of places that have studied bugs in the wild for 50 or 60 years are reporting reductions in the number of insects by 50% or more over those decades. And I started thinking about that. I said, well, that's such a major thing. Everybody must have noticed that. And I started thinking, do you remember when you were a kid? I assume you guys are all old fogies like myself. And you'd see the, the porch light, and it would have so many bugs around it that you could almost not see the light. Right. It looked like that model of all the satellites around the Earth, you know, millions of, of little flying things. I haven't seen that in decades. Hmm. There's uh, more different kinds of bugs and there is a total number of everything else i believe and if they're not doing well i believe that might be a canary in a coal mine sign well i i think it is um and i'm surprised that that nobody's waving this flag it's uh the the the, the strongest study i saw was germans in their forested areas and they protect certain areas and they're still 
as much as possible like they were a thousand years ago and they set out the bug traps and they're coming up with numbers of a 50 percent reduction and not just season to season but slow decline over decades um and you add this to the b uh what was that called the b the b die-off um but which has a more immediate it's just one bug but it has more immediate impact for humans um it's uh, it's unfortunate, but <laughs> you get this feeling that we're all headed toward a wall in a locomotive that everybody's piling on more coal and we're going faster and faster. And, and we look at each other and say, hey, we're headed for a wall. And everybody shrugs and say, yeah, I guess we are. Well, unfortunately, it's not everybody. It seems to be uh, the people that are in control or in denial also. Well, and Gwen, the point being... Uh how does that scenario end? And, you know, um, we've been uh, mentioning this uh, before. Amitav Ghosh, he's a, a writer from India. Um, his idea is the armed lifeboat paradigm, where those that can afford it are an alarmed lifeboat, lifeboat uh, repelling all borders, and the politics of uh, attrition of the unfortunates will be unfortunate and will be kind of ugly when it becomes inescapable that we've, pretty much contributed to this ourselves. Mm-hmm. That, that'll be just a little, a small scene at the, at the end of the big play. Yeah, and um, the people who, uh, like I say, can still blame others and kick downhill will be doing so uh, <laughs> rather uh, viciously at the time. Yeah, uh, and that, that's the model. It, that's such an aside, really, but it's very human to to look at that. Um, I mean, at the very last minute when when we all go, you look at the guy that was the, the, the major denier and well, he's, you're not going to get the satisfaction at the end of your life of him saying, well, I guess you were right. He'll just say, I don't believe it. I'm going to go golfing. <laughs> or something. Well, anyway, good luck to us all, and you guys uh, have fun out on the water. Glenn, I, I listen to uh, the people's opinions sometimes, uh, drive around the truck, listen to other uh, talk radio, you know, and, and I say to myself, could they be right about this, that, or the other? And and I look at the climate denying thing, and I go, they can't be more wrong about that, and that's not a good start. Well, so that, that's that is crazy. I think I hope they would adjust it to say I'm denying that humans are responsible, and I'm denying that we have to spend any money. Like uh, El Presidente the other day said, well, maybe there is climate change, but it would cost jobs to do something about it. Well, there's that's honesty. I appreciate that, and it doesn't really matter whether it costs jobs or you believe in it or you don't believe in it. The climate has never been constant. Never. Why would it be constant now? And someone said, well, you don't know which way the ball is going to bounce. That's absolutely true. If you look at the record, you can have, you can have that, that graph showing the temperature going up, and it's going up and it's going up, and suddenly it just trips over a hill and heads down, almost vertically, down to a, a cold situation. Um, it's oscillating like, uh, you know, one of your mechanisms on the boat that's, that's lost its, uh, its uh, feedback loop uh, filter, and it's just wildly all over the place. And that is the history of the Earth's climate, always has been. Uh, so per- I appreciate per- you guys being on the air and talking about this stuff. Yeah. Not that it's going to make any difference, but... And again, perfect point of the sliding uh, idea of, uh, yeah, it's not real, it could be real, we're not responsible. There's there's a lot of uh, uh, shades in there that are uh, helpful for people who are dodging, uh, you know, big truths, I think. And uh, again, history will not 
possibly be kind because the earth, she is not a flat. Yeah, right. So, yes, thank you for that call. And when you have another call, let's go right to Jerome in, in Union. Good morning, Jerome. Good morning. I uh, appreciate everybody supporting this. Um, the, the previous caller said something about the bugs. And we've noticed here in Union that there's been very few bugs, you know, black flies only for a couple of days, mosquitoes very short-lived, and no moss around the outside lights anymore at all. Hmm. Um, and something that I heard years ago um, in regards to a warming earth, the earth's a great place to live until all the water evaporates. Yeah. Anyway, have a nice day on this beautiful rainy day. Water is the reason we're successful right, on this planet. Yeah. On the other hand, it is the universal solvent. Right. And Some um, say we're heading towards Mars. Think of this, Jerome. If we uh, start to lack for usual bugs, perhaps we'll create some super bugs and we'll we'll make uh, you know oodles and oodles of them to make up for everything. Yeah. And again, unintended consequences uh, not uh, seem to be more likely than not. Uh, and again, the complexity of our atmosphere, uh, the life on this planet. Not, uh, yeah. You go changing this little variable, that big one. We have really stand back. struck a, uh, a nerve here. We have another call. We're going to Gray down in Warren. Good morning, Gray. Hey, guys. Great show. Um, I just wanted to uh, spin this slightly differently. Oh, well, first I want to make a comment about the insects. Uh, which is that one of the greatest uh, killers of insects is light at night. All the nocturnal uh, uh, insects, their their mating uh, things are disturbed. Their cycles are disturbed and interrupted by nighttime light. And it, it's it's one of the reasons we haven't seen all of the great silk moths around, like luna moths and stuff in populated areas the way we used to is because there are too many lights. Plus, the, the unbelievable carnage on the highways, our transportation systems, cars and buses and trains and airplanes, kill enormous numbers of insects. Um, but, but really, <clears throat> excuse me, if you look at climate change, the easiest way to deal with climate change uh, as it affects humans. Let's not say that humans are affecting climate change, but let's say, let's deal with climate change as it affects humans. The easiest way would be to reduce the number of people. All of the problems <laughs> that humans are having with the changing climate result from the fact that we're, there are too many of us. We're crowded into cities. We, we have infrastructure that, that's difficult to move or impossible. And um, we need to reduce our expanding population, learn how to live in an economy that doesn't grow all the time. And then we can, if, if, you're, if your town floods, you'll just move to higher ground. There's room. But at, at the moment, we, we don't have room, and it's going to get worse in 100 years if we haven't had a crisis by then. There's going to be a huge population crash, and it will be ugly. Why don't we start now dealing with um, what's going to be impossible to maintain in the very near future, which is the, uh, the expansive human species. We, if, if we are intelligent, 
we should be able to find a way to modify ourselves so that uh, the changing climate, whether it is human-influenced uh, or not, will not be so devastating on our population. Right now, we're just heading for the waterfall, and nobody's really doing much about it. Anyway, that's that's what I thought I'd say. Okay. Thank you, Gray. And then we have another phone call. Let's go to Jeff. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. Thanks for taking the call. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, enough uh, get get onto a little bit of boating, what's uh, to some degree actually sailing. And uh, just kind of a quick question. Um, I'm looking for a resource locally to find uh, people who may be needing crew, um, whether it's for. Uh, well, obviously, this time of year, it's not going to be for a day sale, but uh, possibly for a delivery. Um, I'm looking to get more time on the water. I've got my own boat, but, I, you know, it's just, it's just um, you know, always need more time and with people who know more than I do and trying to expand my, uh, my uh, knowledge base. So I'm wondering if you got a resource for uh, connecting people. You're looking for more keys to the sea, Jeff. You, you got that right. You yeah. got that right. Uh, first thing I would suggest would be Point Cease Magazine has a crew finder um, thing. Uh, you see it sometimes in the in the magazine. I yeah. believe it's online all the time. Uh, people with boats who want crew, uh, crew wants boats, uh, you know. Yeah, right in the back in the classified section. Point Cease is a free magazine. is available at a lot of uh, marine-related outlets up and down the coast. Yeah. Okay. Past that, it's literally uh, who you know. And well, I have another suggestion too. Um, I would go down to any marina that's in your area, and they most often have a bulletin board somewhere, and put up a little, uh, a little four by five card that says, uh, "Looking for keys to the seas." And <laughs> Okay. All right. Jeff, I've been doing uh, deliveries for about 30 years. I was very fortunate that uh, major boat brokers uh, used to employ us on a regular uh, ongoing basis. Uh, Literally probably done about 300 of these things, you know. And um, People uh, such as you who are uh, looking to uh, go for a delivery uh, very eagerly, uh, there's lots of them. And there are a couple of dangers. Uh, One is sailing with strangers. Man, you never know. Uh, I got that. I get that. You would assume everybody's on the same boat, even if uh, literally the same boat. We got a name for it. It's a physical piece of gear. and uh, But psychologically, too, even though we've all been hired to do the same job, it's been my uh, experience that everybody's on a slightly different trip, you know. Right. Uh, let alone uh, figuring out strangers can uh, come with good and bad uh, unintended consequences. Um the other thing that uh, I've noticed the years of, of boat deliveries is a lot of people are eager, uh, say they're eager, until it comes time to untie the boat. And then you can't understand how many people can find what excuses not to go to sea. Uh, again, it's a, it's a really funny business is, I guess, what I'm saying. One of the things you have to do, I know from my own experience delivering boats, you got to know who you're going with because... You're going to have somebody on a watch schedule. Somebody's going to be, whoever you've got as crew is going to be standing watch, and you turn the boat over to them, and uh, 
that cannot be a good thing. If you have bad weather, storms, you need to have people who know how to deal with situations like that. Went to the Chesapeake last summer with uh, friends of the owner who I'd never sailed with. And, of course, uh, what are these boys going to be like? Or uh, a right. uh, fellow who was uh, captain on that trip is like, Skip, do you have a bondage fetish? Um, are you going to tie me to the boat at night? Can I, you know? <laughs> Turns out he was cool with that kind of stuff. But, again, um, you know, everybody approaches it slightly differently. And, again, it's uh, a really funny business. I call it a one-strike-you're-out league. Um, there are more ways to get in trouble uh, delivering a boat than, than not. And it's all in knowing what's important and how to get yourself out of any trouble you can get into, basically. And, again, very funny business that you have to um, uh, be in the loop. You've got to, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and advertising might be your best. Uh, okay. uh, well, a, you know, I, I appreciate the, the insight there. I mean, I... Um, again, it's one of those things where, like I said, I'm trying to expand my own knowledge base and what you even just said about uh, being on a delivery. And we, uh, My thinking was, well, there's a good way to get some, some sea time without, um, you know, too much, uh, too much time involved in it, except for, you know, whatever days it takes. But you bring up some really good points. And, uh, yeah, it's even tricky for me. My again, my front guy, uh, Andy Horner, he was the uh, chief uh, broker for the Morris Company for years. Um, Andy passed on season before last, and again, that's yeah. been hard yeah. on my business plan. You need a front man uh, to interface with these uh, special people who have these fabulous boats that need to go places you can't even understand. You know, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, again, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Yeah, we are doing boat talks morning. It's just uh, kind of a potpourri so far. By and we haven't had the chance to talk to Charlie. Oh, at heck all. with Charlie. Uh, <laughs> there is one other thing I'd like to, I'd like to throw in, and uh, found this at the uh, Ellsworth Library the other day. Brand new book by Nathaniel Philbrook, uh, author of Mayflower, uh, Valiant Ambition, uh, uh, Bunker Hill, among others. This is called In the Hurricane's Eye, The Genius of George Washington and the Victory at Yorktown. And the thesis behind uh, Nathaniel Philbrick's book here was it could not have been done without sea power. And the United States did not have any. Um, but we had entered an alliance with France. And France had a beautiful navy. France was always fussy with the English and wanted to fight them, basically. So uh, that's why they were... Uh, thrown in with us. Now, um, the French and uh, American thing was, you know, Lafayette was uh, uh, fun to hang out with, but the uh, troops and the vessels weren't always there when George Washington wanted them to be. The French had their own uh, things that they needed to do. And let's think about uh, North America being a pretty valuable piece of real estate. An even more valuable piece of real estate was the Caribbean, the Sugar Islands down there. Um, there was more more value in those islands than there was in the continent above them at the time. And rum. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the Spanish, the French, and the English all had their different islands and were fussing over them. So strategically, the Caribbean was, was vastly important to those folks. Um, Washington was trying as hard as he could to get the French fleet from the Caribbean to come north. But he couldn't get them to come north because they had things to do in the Caribbean. Yeah, because the English were blockading 
most of the Americas. Yeah, there was a French fleet at Newport, but it was only half a dozen uh, ships and really uh, couldn't do much. Uh, you know, had uh, fussed with the British, but really uh, not decisive. The British owned the water. We owned the land. Nothing good was going anywhere. We were five, six years into this revolution and kind of stalemating, and George Washington feeling pretty bad about the future. In the fall of 1780, there were three tremendous hurricanes in the Caribbean, uh, unprecedented at the time, um, absolutely wiped out Guadeloupe, among other places, French naval base, and those three hurricanes absolutely devastated to an unprecedented extent the Caribbean in, in October 1780, okay? Yorktown was October 1781, one year later. The next season, the French says, screw this down here this season. We're not staying for hurricane season. And the French admiral came north, basically, not for strategic help for George Washington, but get away from the weather. Mm-hmm. He run into a British fleet off of the mouth of the Chesapeake, and they fought a battle. And uh, that was pretty much decisive to the whole Yorktown outcome. There was not a single American ship involved. And that British of the uh, that battle of the uh, Virginia Capes there, not American involved in it, mm. only French and British. A um, lot of them involved from the shore. You're right. But. Yeah. Now Philbrook is making the point in this in the Hurricane's Eye that it was all about naval power, and it come about accidentally, partly because of weather, why they came up here. He goes on and on about the fact that the United States Navy wasn't much of anything. Okay, and. At the same time, he makes the point that we spent 10% of everything we spent on the revolution on a Navy, which hardly ever showed up and did anything. It was very expensive and and not in much evidence. Um, He makes the point that we revolted over over, uh, paying taxes, and we didn't want to pay for our own revolution either, and it was getting into a bad corner there. Um, One thing that struck me on this is this hurricane was in 1780. in 1779, the American Navy had its biggest uh, catastrophe, calamity, uh, you know, defeat in naval history up until Pearl Harbor. And Nathaniel Philbrook, doing this uh, naval uh, thesis here in this book, In the Hurricane's Eye, The Genius of George Washington and Yorktown, does not see fit to even mention uh, Castine, Maine in 1779, the Penobscot Expedition. There was a Navy there, yes. Yes, and, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't make the history books hardly ever. I always look in, in uh, Pearl Harbor books for Admiral Harry Yarnell in the index, and he doesn't show up much. He bombed Pearl Harbor in 1933 war games. Yeah, I remember you saying And was that. told to go away and behave, mm-hmm. um, you know. And uh, so Castine doesn't come up much in the uh, uh, histories of the Revolution either because it was such a debacle that uh, nobody really wants to talk about it. In fact, there was a U.S. naval vessel there, uh, Commodore Dudley Saltonstall, and he was in charge of a fleet of about three dozen vessels that was basically the Massachusetts State Navy. This was a Massachusetts expedition to Castine in the fall of 1779. Um, There was the U.S. uh, Continental ship that Saltonstall was commanding, and... They basically hung the whole thing on the fact that Saltonstall would not sail into the harbor against the fortified islands and uh, Henry Mowat's uh, ships that were uh, anchored across the mouth of the harbor. As uh, the famous quote is, I'm not 
risking my ships in that damned tide hole, <laughs> Castine Harbor. Bad tide in there. Yeah. So they blame the whole thing on Saltonstall. Um, history has much, been much kinder to Saltonstall uh, in between now and then. But again, uh, this does not come up in this naval uh, influence history of the end of the American Revolution. We don't want to talk about that at all. Um, very underappreciated uh, moment of American history. Two of my favorite little uh, uh, pieces of this history is there was one uh, U.S. Continental Navy ship there. The rest were chartered by the state of Massachusetts. Twenty-six of those vessels were taken and or burned uh, and abandoned by their own crews who then run away into the woods as the British uh, came up upon them on Friday, August 13th. Again, a day that does not resound uh, in American history. Um, it become a drifting match from Castine Harbor up the mouth of the uh, Penobscot River. The big British ships were offshore. They had wind in their tall sails and caught up to the Americans who beached themselves on shore, lit their uh, ships on fire, and ran away in the woods. Yeah. Okay? Uh, those ships had all been rented by the state of Massachusetts. A lot of them just had one gun or two that they rolled onto them to make them into a, a Navy boat there. Yeah, but all, all those ships, those two dozen ships, the 26 ships that were, were wrecked, were almost all chartered by the state of Massachusetts, hmm. who now has to go back to the owners of the boat and say, oh, by the way, we're not returning your boat and, and uh, I'm not paying the rent because you don't have a boat. And uh, Thanks, see ya. The owners of the boat petitioned the new American government to be recompensated for the loss of those vessels. And they were, in fact, paid off in 1829. It took to pay for those ships from 1779. So like 50 years later. Yes, debacle there. And, and, uh, and again, all blamed on the U.S. Navy uh, unjustly at the time. My other favorite episode from the Castine uh, story is uh, the court-martial of uh, Paul Revere. Paul Revere was a colonel in the Massachusetts um, artillery, and he was stationed in Boston Harbor, defending the harbor uh, with cannons on the island. He was known as a fellow who knew everything, couldn't ever be criticized or told nothing, and was uh, pretty touchy about most stuff. He also liked to be in a feather bed at night with his wife, never stayed on the post uh, with the boys or anything, and was uh, kind of a hands-off commander who was not known as much of a hand with a cannon. Um, he was a bit of a problem in Castine. They, they, uh, modern history, I guess, blames most of it on the artillery, uh, lack of handling of it. Uh, Revere was in charge. There were innumerable councils of war, and the whole thing was spearheaded. Here's another great irony for you, the Castine story. The uh, American general was um, Peleg Wadsworth, and his daughter... Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's mother had just been born when he came down to fight at Castine. And Pegleg Wadsworth and Paul Revere could not stand each other. Um, Pegleg Wadsworth, it is said, would roll over in his grave if he knew his grandson had made that bastard famous. Because his name rhymed better uh, Revere than Joseph Dawes with other stuff. So, um, again, the Castine story, much underappreciated and... Uh, doesn't show up in this naval influence history. Nathaniel Philbrook, about halfway through it, excellent in the hurricane's eye. Highly recommended. All right. Well, we only have just a couple of minutes <laughs> left to, to talk fast with Charlie Pugh, who is a 
a veteran. Um, yesterday was Veterans Day. Um, thought we'd maybe uh, got two Veterans Days this year. That was cool. Sunday and Monday. Right. Yeah, we did really. Yeah. Um, just uh, talk about the old days in the Navy. Now you, Charlie, Charlie. When did when did you join the Navy and why? Well, I was in through ROTC in college, and it was uh, back in 1962, three, four. A civil authority has issued required monthly test for the following counties or areas. Maine. At 10.55 a.m. on November 13, 2018 effective until 11.40 a.m. This is a coordinated monthly test of the emergency alert system for the state of Maine. If this were an actual emergency official information would follow the alert tones. I'd get uh, sworn at. <laughs> yeah. I would think of it as the most nerve-wracking job on the boat. And yeah, it was, oh yeah, there's there's a lot of situations that you get into like that. I think I mentioned one time before getting caught in a hurricane and having to run for it and go up through Crooked Island Passage, and uh, that's a trick. Uh, yeah. We'll talk about that someday. Well, we'll have to continue this later. Okay. Support for WERU comes from